0: Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 16 verses 13 to 28. Again, that's Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 to 28. <coughs> Excuse me. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can use the one in front of you under your seat, and turn to page 771. Okay, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.
1: Good morning. Uh, we're going to get small, smaller groups started soon, and I'm very excited that we can do this with our church. If you haven't signed up already, I encourage you to do so, and we'll get going by next week. Let's pray before we begin. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word, and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. And aid your servant in bringing forth the word of God, that he may glorify you. And aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, This is a dense passage, and usually when we come across those passages, I just go straight into it, and I hope you'll see why as we progress in today's passage. Verse 13 says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And Jesus leaves the Pharisees and Sadducees, as we saw last week, and takes his disciples into Gentile territory. It's like a retreat like the ladies had last weekend. I heard the ladies had an awesome retreat last weekend, but in a similar fashion, Jesus takes his disciples to a distant place, Caesarea Philippi, which is Gentile land, and the topic of this retreat, or the topic of reflection was, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of man is a designation that Jesus often gave himself. It didn't have any political connotations, and if you read the book of Daniel, it most definitely had messianic implications. And this is how disciples responded. They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Like Herod Antipas would claim that Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnated or resurrected, Elijah, some say Elijah because of Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 was thought to become reincarnated so Jesus would be doing similar works that Elijah did and so they connected him to Elijah. Jeremiah is an interesting one because Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, often foretold a lot of judgment and prophesied doom and gloom, right? And so we hear Jesus when we have read these past 16 chapters, Jesus also, many, many times, time after time, would also foretell of the coming judgment in a very similar but somber tone. Or one of the prophets could have meant that Jesus was another prophet, not a reincarnated one, but a new prophet. And so all these things are now being taught and they're being shared with one another, right? And so Jesus goes, who do people say I am? And then he says to them in verse 15, but who do you say I am? That's the real question that Jesus is going after in this retreat. And Simon Peter replies in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the pinnacle, of not just this passage, this is the mountaintop. Of Matthew that we will see here and this is right in the middle Simon Peter replies you are the Christ the son of the living God what about you the disciples Peters and Peter being the spokesman he answers you are the Christ meaning the anointed one the Messiah the son of the living God Simon Peter here brings out the most comprehensive expression of the Lord's essence Truly a mountain peak in the middle of Matthew. The most exalted place is ascribed to Jesus. And Jesus answers him in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He gives him his full name. That's like, you know, blessed are you, first name, last name. You know, Simon Bar, Bar meaning son, Jonah meaning son of Jonah. So Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This incredible and blessed revelation did not come to Peter by his own understanding or intellect, but it was revealed to him by God, whom Jesus refers to as my Father who is in heaven. The source of this information is God with whom Jesus has a profoundly intimate relationship, a relationship, mind you, that no one else would dare claim without falling into apostasy. In verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Matthew and in the Gospels, there are only two mentions of church, and it's translated from the word ecclesia. Two mentions of the word church, and it's in Matthew in chapter 16, which we've read today, and the other is in chapter 18, when Jesus goes over church discipline. So because it is so rare, our ears should perk up, our spirits should be alert. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my Ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I used to test people, especially if you had the name Peter, what they thought this verse in particular meant. Now I would ask, did Jesus mean that he was going to build a church on Peter or build a church on Jesus? When he goes, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ter- church, did Jesus mean he was going to build a church on Peter or on Jesus? And uh, it's kind of a trick question. I like asking it. Because historically, there have been a plethora of interpretations by scholars, not only in this verse, but the following verse on the loosing and binding. This, this, whole, this whole passage is so dense, and it has so much meaning. There are many, many interpretations throughout history that people have tried to come and hang on to, and so I'm going to do my best, in fact, this is such a difficult passage, many times as I was uh, reflecting on it, I would go outside, and if my wife was there, I'd just be like, Esther, this is a very difficult passage. And then i go back into my studies. And uh, this is a very difficult passage, and so I'm going to do my best to show you what it could have meant, what people thought it meant, what it possibly means, what it definitely means, what it definitely doesn't mean, and things of that nature. Uh, like I said, or asked, is Jesus going to build a church on Peter or on Jesus? Meaning, what's the rock? Is the rock Peter or Jesus? And so people will disagree. There are scholars and you know, people in the past who have said it's definitely this or that. And not only that, what does verse 28 mean? It's um, about the loosing and binding. What does that even mean? And so... I would like to put this into context. The reason why I spent just a few minutes on the verses before is that we must put all our understanding of the Bible in context. And if something is difficult in the plain reading, number one, when you want to interpret the Bible, take the plain reading. And if the plain reading is confusing, you take it into context. And other scripture interprets scripture. And so we're going to try to do that here. Um, Confession and submission is how we started the passage. Confession and submission, but it's just the beginning. There's an infinite number of things to learn and grow that starts from confession and submission. I'm gonna say that again, infinite number of things for us to learn and grow, and it starts from confession and submission. Realizing this would in the very least keep you humble when it comes to the mysteries of God revealed through the word. Revealed through the word, meaning Jesus Christ, the Bible. So to save some time and energy, I will not be going over all the possible interpretations of these passages, but maybe tackle on one of the more popular ones. First, what does you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church mean? A lot of scholars and Roman Catholics have taken this passage to mean that Jesus calls Simon Bar-Jonah Peter, which is translated from petros in the Greek, and it means rock. And so it is upon Peter that Jesus will build the church. This presents a numerous amount of problems. One primarily being that if Jesus really meant that he was going to build the church upon Peter that it is rock, why not just say that outright? You are Peter and upon you I will build this church. But in fact, Jesus uses a pun, and he uses, uh, the he, he says this, he says, upon Petros, which literally just means like a small rock or a pebble, so upon Petros, uh, I'm sorry, you are Petros, a small rock or a pebble, and upon this Petra, which is bedrock, it's a huge foundational rock, I will build my church. Why would Jesus use this pun? And uh If Jesus establishes, uh, and then you might think, well, you know, maybe it's this pun because rock, rock. It may seem reasonable, but let's play out the scenario. If we play out the scenario, which the Roman Catholics have interpreted this to mean, they interpret it to mean that Jesus establishes his church on Peter, which is the rock, and that means that Peter has now been given this infallibility And this incredible exclusive authority which they now see as the papacy or the pope and that pope or the papacy is passed down through peter Uh, there is no biblical foundation for this reasoning and then there's the problem if peter is the true successor that jesus builds the church on then Peter's successor, which would have immediately succeeded Peter after his death, would have had even authority over the Apostle John, because Apostle John outlived all the other apostles. So we even see other places in the Bible where Peter wasn't infallible. In fact, he was very fallible, where Paul would rebuke Peter in Acts. Peter is held accountable by the other apostles and even the Jerusalem council the church. How we got to the Roman papal authority from especially this one verse is not just a stretch, but I believe this to be a manipulation of devastating proportions. Secondly, Peter in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus would have spoken in, is what we know to be cephas or kepha, which literally means rock. If Peter was meant to have just simply meant rock, the less confusing word to use in the greek would have been lithos which would have meant a stone of any si- size but the specific words that are used is peter's called petros and upon this petra which is bedrock jesus builds his church peter petros small rock but in fact is a masculine noun petra which means bedrock it is a feminine noun is used by jesus And we can't get away from the seemingly strange mix of metaphors, this pun. And in the very least, when you read this, the readers of the gospel should have noticed the pun. Step back for a second and recognize that Petra is way bigger than Petros. So upon this rock, I will build my church, refers to something that is bigger than Peter. It refers to something that is bigger than Peter. And I hope you're following because It gets crazier than this, okay, as as the passage goes on. And so the church, the rock, the rock in which the church is built is bigger than Peter, but what is that rock? And so that's why we look at context. Looking at context, one would see that what immediately preceded this statement was Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So yes, the rock is Jesus, but it refers specifically in this passage to the confession and revelation that Jesus is God. So that way the pun would make sense because the small stone would recognize the immense bedrock by the power of God. Again, in that sense, the larger rock sets first the smaller rock in the building of his church. And to further qualify this, Peter himself admits as much in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he recognizes Jesus as the cornerstone or bedrock. It is upon this confession who Jesus is that the church is built on. Okay, it's upon this confession that the church is built on, and even the gates of hell shall not overcome it. And we've gone over what hell, Hades, or Shoal was, the land of the dead, And so if you've been called into the church now, if you have this confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God, then you have been called into the church, you've been called into the ecclesia, meaning you have had this revelation given to you by God, not by your own intellect, by your own understanding, it's been given to you by God, and it's the church that hell or the land of dead will have no claim over. There is no way that hell or the land of the dead could ever touch the church. The boundary of the church will completely annihilate even the gates of Hades. The church cannot die. And this is the basis of hope for the people who put their faith in the Messiah. Uh, When I was uh, younger, in my 20s, I found out a game. Uh, It was an East Asian game. And in Korean, it's called Paduk, in Japanese, it's called Go, in Chinese, it's another name. Uh, and it's where you just take black stones and the or white stones, and the opponent takes black stones or white stones, and you just play against each other. And basically, you build walls, and inside, if you have two houses, you're good, and things like that. And people have always thought, oh, this is, you know... Black versus white, good versus evil, left versus right, these things like that. And people have always thought there's a balance, like a yin and yang sort of thing. Jesus here completely demolishes that thinking. Nothing will ever be able to overcome the church. Even the gates of Hades, the fortifications, gates means fortifications, even the fortifications will have no claim over the church And this is what Jesus is declaring as he builds the church upon the rock, which is the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Holy One, the Son of the living God. That's just verse 18. We're going to get to verse 19. In verse 19, he goes, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the big rock gives the smaller rock the keys to the heaven. To understand this more fully, we need to understand what this loosing and binding means. They were put together because they are related. Verse 19 uses something that we know in literary function as the periphrastic future perfect tense. And the way we can read it is literally this way. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I get that we are now in Greek syntax territory, but it's mainly to show us the impossibility of some of the other interpretations that people have taken in recent history, okay? First, it is not referring to demons. We don't go around binding demons and if we're binding demons, who's loosening them? These guys, right? What is this chaos and confusion that some people are teaching? There is no reason to even remotely believe that this section is about demons, even and especially when we look at context. Secondly, it's not about things. We don't bind and loose things. Peter's not binding or loosing material things or even laws or customs. Keys are given to people, and the binding and loosing is referring to people. And that's pretty deep. And we're going to see even more of what this means when Jesus uses this exact line in Matthew 18 when he talks about church discipline. Binding and loosing is about people. So the question should be, so in what sense do keys and the binding and loosing relate to people? In Luke 11.52, Jesus pronounces his woes to the teachers of the law and says that they have taken away the key to knowledge. So there is another key that's mentioned, and Jesus goes, you teachers of the law, you've taken away the key to knowledge, failing not only to enter themselves, but they would be hindering other people and preventing other people from entering the kingdom as well. So they take away the key to knowledge. So this, in contrast... Peter in his right confession of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God will be given the keys of heaven. We're going to put all these puzzle pieces together. So just as the false teachers take away the key, Peter by his proclamation and confession is being given the keys. Thus, what we are saying is Peter by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ will open the kingdom to many and at the same time shut it against Many. This is how the periphrastic future tense makes sense. His binding and loosing is directly related to the proper and right confession of Jesus as the Messiah and son of the living God, the profession and proclamation of the gospel. It is not Peter who has some kind of direct access to heaven or some authority to bind or loose That heaven has to comply, but it is through the gospel proclaimed that we see this binding and loosing fulfilled. So, does this promise apply to Peter only? To the other disciples? To the church? When we look at the general overview of the gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus calls his disciples to be fishers of men, to be salt and light in the world preach the good news of the kingdom, then to the rest of his disciples to make even more disciples to preach the gospel in Matthew chapter 28. It seems as though then, if we understand that in this context, the keys of the kingdoms are confided in the church, and again, especially we'll see this when we get to Matthew 18. Throughout biblical history, we have seen that God uses a small band of people to influence and effect change throughout the world to proclaim his lordship, and to give him glory. Jesus, by mentioning all of this and introducing Ecclesia, the church, is now showing us what God intends to do through the church. Jesus ends this part by strictly telling them not to tell anyone he was the Christ. It wasn't because Jesus was afraid and wanted to keep it a secret, but the fuller understanding of the current revelation would come and until it came, the disciples are not are warned not to spread this incomplete understanding of the Messianic Revelation. And this is why the next verse happens. So that's why we need to take all of this into context. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chiefs, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, meant that Jesus is following the will of God. Jesus, following the will of God, will go to Jerusalem. This is very specific. Will go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day, be raised. These are very specific prophecies that Jesus is now proclaiming. And it's not just very specific, it's very alarming. We know this must have been the case because imagine all of this. Now I'm talking, and I gave you the the nitty-gritty of what the loosing and binding and what the rock is, but what's behind, what's the foundation is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the guy that we've been waiting for. He's the, 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 the king, and through him, the kingdom is coming. That's an exciting thing, and this has been revealed to Peter, and he's excited. The disciples are excited. We are disciples of the king. But following this revelation, Jesus goes, don't tell anybody this. And then a further teaching continues from Jesus. He's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and the third day he raised again. It's very specific, but I hope that you can see it's very alarming And we know this would have been the case because Peter, who has this incredible revelation, and he was complimented by such a rare accolade, Simon Bar-Jonah. This guy, he takes Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him. A rebuke is a strong denunciation, a harsh reprimand. And how does uh, Peter begin to rebuke? He goes, far be it from you, Lord. Far be it from you in the Greek is also translated as God forbid or no in the strongest sense. This will never happen to you. If we did it in English today's language, the way we speak, it would be no, 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 no. That's how that's how emphatic our no's would be. When Jesus starts saying this, Peter takes him aside and goes, no, 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 no way. God forbid, which is so ironic that Peter would say it that way. But as soon as Peter starts to rebuke Jesus, Jesus turns to Peter, and he goes, get behind me. And people are like, get behind me. must have been like, uh, Peter, you are a disciple. You don't lead me. Get back in line. Until you read the next like, word. It says, get behind me, Satan. It couldn't have been get back into place. Because of that last word. Get behind me, Satan. This is reminiscent of Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus would say to Satan, Be gone, Satan. When did he say that? When Satan wanted Jesus to worship him. A request that was so beyond the pale that Jesus would have to exclaim for Satan to be gone. What is similar about what Peter just said and what Satan did before? Before Jesus says, be gone to Satan, Satan offers Jesus kingship, but kingship without suffering. Suffering that was willed by God. In the same way, Peter does the same by adopting these messianic views of conquest and eliminating the idea of suffering. This is the world's way. Victory without suffering. And this way of viewing victory was a stumbling block to Jesus. And he emphatically commands Peter to get out of his way, calling him Satan in the process. So what does that mean? Was that uncalled for? And people who don't understand the force of Peter's statement won't understand the weight of Jesus' response. And because people don't see it, we see and hear of interpretations that are not consistent with the plain language of the Bible. Like, I've heard this, Jesus wasn't really looking at Peter when he turned, he was looking beyond Peter at Satan. So get behind me, saying he was like looking through Peter. Where in the Bible does it say that? Doesn't it say that he turns to Peter, not turns to Satan who was behind Peter? And people will finagle whatever they can from the Bible, what the Bible clearly teaches, so that they could put their minds at ease, so they can ultimately what? So that we can ultimately live the way we want, claiming this is what the Bible is saying. This is extremely dangerous, and I would highly caution you from doing something similar. Right before... Peter is a rock that Jesus is setting up as he builds the church and now he's another rock what kind of rock a stumbling block or a scandalon or it's translated it could be translated as trap scandalon is where we get the word scandal why is that and Jesus goes on to explain why why is the rebuke of Peter's rebuke so harsh because he was in setting the mind of the things Of God, but rather the things of man, which is in effect the things of Satan. There is a fascinating juxtaposition that Matthew shows that at one point you can be commended and blessed by God, and the flip side be called Satan. And to fully understand why, we will go to the next and final section of this passage. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To be a true disciple of Jesus, to go after Jesus, you must, number one, deny yourself. This may seem like basic wisdom, because to gain anything, or to adopt any discipline, we must deny ourselves something. If you want to lose weight, deny yourself unhealthy foods. If you want to be a good worker or a good student, deny partying too much and study and put in the work. If you want to be a good parent, deny watching too much TV and play with your kids. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. These are things that raise the self. We are proud of having healthy bodies. We are proud of getting good grades or doing a good job on our projects. We are proud of being good parents. This is not what Jesus is talking about. In fact, it only goes beyond that, it not only goes beyond that, but he is demanding everything that you are proud of. Anything that you would make you proud, you deny it. Jesus isn't talking about denying yourself something. Deny yourself something to get something. He is saying deny yourself. To deny yourself is to renounce yourself. This isn't anything new, uh, but the constant theme that we've seen in Matthew is that and the disciples would have heard this many times. It's just that they weren't doing it. Augustine of Hippo would write, if Christ is not valued above all, he is not valued at all. You must deny yourself if you want to follow Christ. Not deny nice, something. The second part is take up His cross. Suffering is a guarantee in this life. These aren't just minor discomforts. Jesus' listeners knew exactly what the cross meant. It wasn't just a metaphor. However, we are taught that you will either suffer because of your own sins or suffer because of Christ. Peter knows this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he goes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But he continues, but let none of you suffer as a meddler or a thief or murderer or evildoer. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Then he quotes, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Peter realizes this when he sees that those that share in Christ's sufferings are actually entrusting their souls to God. But the cross isn't just suffering, it's death. Death to self isn't just a one time event happening it is a continuing characteristic of jesus's disciples there is a famous artist who came out uh, saying that he is now a christian uh, came out with a gospel album most recently and people are all talking is this person's uh conversion legitimate is his music biblical whatever the case is and I guess the question people are asking, how do we know that someone is saved? How do you know that someone is saved? I think the question that we ask is then, did he finish the race? Was she able to endure to the end? That's how you know someone is saved. Go to the last part, and follow me. Following someone meant that you are a disciple of that teacher. It meant that you will do what the teacher does. It's a continuous imperative, and you will continue to follow him all the way. In Luke, Jesus literally says, take up his cross daily. I've heard someone try to put it in this way, where you see that life is tough without Jesus. And this is what he said. What have you got to lose? So why don't you give your life to Jesus? You'll be happier, more at ease this way. Life sucks right now, right? Jesus is a better way. This kind of teaching is not only dangerous, but it's false. Jesus never says that his ways are easier than the world's. Never. He says that one way leads to death and one way leads to life. And he shows us which way leads to life. Wait, wait. Uh, Isn't the path that Jesus walks a more joyful and happier one? Absolutely, it is. There is no other path more joyful and full of God's peace. But at the same time, what we are being shown in the Word is there is no path more difficult and narrow. The deceit of the world is that ease equals happiness, but it is not. True happiness is found in God, and he shows us how through his son, Jesus, we have an idol, and that is comfort and ease. We get excited when things come to us at ease. I'm one of them. I would like to think of myself as, you know, someone who can traverse the wilds and be in the woods I don't like going to the backyard. I'm like, there are ticks. I'm not going to the backyard, let alone camping. We like Ease, and I'm like, I like being a city boy. I like going home, and I like having a recliner where I push a button, and it goes mm, And then I can turn on any kind of streaming device, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Prime. There's so many now. It's like, I like this show and this. I like this show and this, and just give it like five hours and go away. We love Ease. We want ease, and we have elevated ease to an idol. It is not God. That's the deceit of the world. Just because we have these things, we think we have happiness, but it is not the Bible. And Jesus, our Lord, is showing us that true happiness isn't found in ease. It's found in Him through His Son, Jesus, and he goes on to further qualify in verse 25, for whoever would save his life, if you want this ease, you want to live a long, comfortable life, you want to be healthy, you want to do all these things, and you do all these things to gain it, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for a soul? Jesus inserts reasoning for his disciples to understand why this is so, but first starts off with this paradox. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you will find it. When we try to find meaning and purpose by looking into ourselves, we will come up short. And we will be found wanting. Who then finds life? the one that looks to Christ. What's the point of gaining the whole world? What's the point? You may have heard it said, as long as I live my life to the fullest, I have no regrets. You may have heard people say some kind of paraphrasing of this or something similar. As long as I live my life to the fullest, I have no regrets This is a vociferous cry of outrage at the Creator. You just don't know it. It is a blatant rebellion against the one who gave you a specific purpose. It is an outright denial of reality and a claim that you get to dictate life on your own terms. So that's why Jesus is rhetorically asking, but asking so that we are able to see this. What if you gain the whole world? would you be able to trade that in for your soul? If you gain everything in the world, could you then trade that for your soul? You will not be able to, let alone come under, even if you had so much wealth and riches, you would not be able to. In the Bible, there are people who have come really close to this, if not all the way. Were they able to save themselves from God? Nebuchadnezzar, he was able to claim that he ruled the entire world. He built the hanging gardens of Babylon, which we now know as one of the seven, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. But was he able to save himself? What about Pharaoh of ancient Egypt? To this day, there are pyramids, And to this day, the pyramids baffle scientists and other brilliant minds. And now people say, there is no way with the technology they had, with the understanding they had back in ancient Egypt that they could have built these magnificent structures. So now people just don't know how. They're like, and we see, I I, I see documentaries. Could it have been aliens? Aliens, that's the answer. Aliens must have helped them because there's no way. Pharaoh, who was the king and ruler over what is possibly the greatest kingdom to have ever come across this earth in all its history, was he able to save himself from God's wrath? We just read the catechism. Was he able to save himself from God? This kingdom that was so advanced, so much greater than any other of the nations that surrounded them, no one could have even fathomed their demise, as well as Babylon too, and yet, even Babylon two centuries before Babylon fell, Isaiah prophesies its demise. Judgment is sure, and Jesus says it again. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This isn't a statement of comfort. It's a statement of judgment. What can you offer God when he comes in judgment? It's not if, it's when. And with every proclamation, Jesus' kingdom is a step closer. But Jesus shows us a way. And in John, it's made even clearer when Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. The truth of the matter is, even if you gain, look, we're trying so hard to gain so much in this world, but to what point are you trying so hard? What is that going to gain you? Will you be able to buy back your soul? We cannot offer him anything. But Jesus Christ has paved the way for us. And if we are to follow him, what we are saying, we're going to cling onto him because there's no other way. And this is what Jesus commands his disciples. Deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow him. This is such a difficult command. Can you do it? Can you do it? Immediately when we turn away from this, it's going to be one of those, at least one of those three things that I said. You're gonna think deny myself is to deny unhealthy foods and I could be healthy. That's what's gonna make me happy. Or I'm going to deny myself a little bit of pleasure so I could be a better parent. That's what's going to make me happy. I'm going to deny myself a little bit of party time so I can work or study a little bit more. That's gonna make me happy. And then that cycle goes. We fall deeper and deeper into the deceit. We think that this is the way and it's not because, in the end, can it buy back your soul? Jesus says, deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow him. This is so difficult. Uh, to be honest, this is the stuff that I just keeps me up at night, and I'm praying, and I'm praying. Just as we prayed before, in the beginning of this passage, God, it's up to you to open the eyes and ears of our heart so that we are able to understand this, but able to also do this. How can we understand this and how can we do this? Because if you do not do this, you will not be following Jesus. How can we be sure that we will be able to do this? And the scriptures give us this we look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. May I continue to read more? Consider him... Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Consider him so you will not grow weary in this race, in this journey." Can I read more? In verse four it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Can I read more? And in verse five it says, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his sons. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. This is the encouragement that we have that we can follow Christ even though it may seem impossibly difficult and hard. And when we even think about it, how can you fathom taking up the cross and following him? Taking up the cross I get upset if my recliner like malfunctions for a second. It's like, why well, isn't this thing moving back fast enough? I need to rest. Taking up the cross, how can we do that? By looking at his word and holding his promises dear and true and walking in that faith. Jesus has led the way for us so that we can be his child. Consider him. Consider him, look at him, he's the one that endured this terrible, terrible, terrible journey but endured the cross, it says, despising the shame because there was a joy set before him. That's why we could do the same. That's why we are able to do the same. This is impossible in the world's eyes, impossible. It is only possible by the power of God, by the power of his Holy Spirit. It is only possible if you have the word revealed to you and revealed to you in a manner which it revealed to Peter so that we can confess and proclaim, my Lord is Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And now I deny myself, I take up the cross and follow him. There is great joy, not just this recognition, but now seeing that God is the one that will empower us. He is the perfecter and author of our faith. He is the one that will carry us through the finishing line. We will not fail because God has guaranteed it. How? By the blood. What blood? The blood of his son. It is guaranteed to us because he has given his church the Holy Spirit. That's why in joy we gather, we worship, and we say, all I have is Christ, and that's all I need, and that is more than I'll ever need. And this is our proclamation this is our confession this is the faith and the bedrock in which we stand and this is what the church will proclaim to the world until he comes again and this is why we can stand in joy and say this truth jesus you are the messiah the son of the living god and i follow you let's pray